you know, I have editors who, in New York who call me at like seven or like people who want to set, you know, appointments at, you know, eight o'clock. And, I, you know, I always just kind of explain that, like, I'm sorry, but I have to go work on my farm. I have so much work to do. I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast. I'm Jennifer Grayson here in a very unusually rainy and thunderstorming Los Angeles. Maybe you can hear that in the background. I'm here to bring you stories of people who have left behind our modern industrialized existence for a life more aligned with our human history and our place in the natural world. Along those lines, I have an absolutely delightful guest and interview for you today with AC Shilton. She is an investigative journalist whose writing I just adore. And I had read in one of her pieces last year that she had left behind city life to go all in on her dream of becoming a farmer. I asked her to come on the show. She agreed, and she is here today to tell us all about what that transition has been like and how she is organizing her day between farm chores and still writing for outlets like the New York Times and Outside Magazine. She's super cool. You are going to love this interview. If you've been dreaming about one day having a farm or even just leaving the city, maybe when you retire one day to live in the country, this is an episode you should definitely listen to because AC is the inspiration that maybe you don't have to wait that long and maybe there's a way to do it all. All right. After this episode, I have two final episodes of Uncivilized to bring you before the new year. Two really exciting interviews you're not going to want to miss. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening and I will be back really soon with a new episode. A.C. Shilton is a Tennessee-based freelance journalist and farmer. She splits her time between investigative projects, lifestyle writing, and herding chickens. You can see her investigative work in action in the Netflix docuseries, The Innocent Man. A.C., welcome to Uncivilized. Thank you so much for having me. So I don't get to talk to many famous investigative journalist farmers, and I'm curious how your day actually works. Uh, It's 3 p.m. your time, so can you walk me through your day? Up until now? Okay. I don't know if I'd say I'm famous, but, but yes, I can walk you through my day. Um, so yeah, uh, let's see. Um, I get up uh, and the first thing I do is take care of farm animals, um, which is like the best way to start my day. And it's um, something that like I have found to be the really good antidote to like my work as a journalist, which is like often so slow moving. And so um, like, I, I kind of hate to use this word, but like, it's really constipated. Like, it's like, it's just <laughs> like, it, I spend months and months like trying to get like, I have a FOIA for the FBI that is two years in the making. And like, I, you know, like, so a lot of my work goes very, very slowly. So I love that I get up. And the first thing that I do in the morning is like, get a bunch of stuff done with my farm animals. Right. So I like go outside and like, even in my pajamas, I like feed the chickens. What um, time is this AC? Okay. Well, you know, I actually kind of just lied to you. So I get up and I run first. The first thing I do is I go for a run. I'm usually about uh, five 30 in the morning. Um, and 
here's a weird thing is that I live in central time, but we're right on the line. Um, and so, um, and my husband works on Eastern time. So I actually get up at four in the morning, central five Eastern. Um, but, but that's wow. like a weird detail you don't need. Um, but yeah, so I get up and I try and I go for a run. Um, and like, that's like the easiest time to just get it done and like get, you know, one thing checked off my list and then it's on to farm work. So, um, by usually by six, um, I've, you know, I'm getting the chickens out of their coop and feeding them. Um, and then taking care of, I've got two horses, or excuse me, I have three horses. Uh, I forgot one. Um, I, I just bought another horse, uh, to, to, as a, as a buddy. So, um, then I, yeah, take care of my horses. I kind of you know, clean some stalls, move some manure around. Um, and so the first like kind of two hours of my day are just farm related tasks. And I like feel like that is like such as like a good time to kind of check things off a list and feel like I have been productive because the rest of my day is going to be not as productive. Just that's like the nature of how investigative journalism works. So, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, take care of my dog, make sure the barn cat has been fed, all of that stuff till about eight o'clock where I, t- I really try to be at my desk by eight. So you have an official desk time and then you're actually sitting and doing your work as a journalist. Yes. Um, and I try and keep really regular hours just so, you know, I, uh, A, it's like good for me to have a routine. Um, and B, I think if I didn't keep regular hours, I would spend all day out in my garden or on my farm and like never get my journalism work done. Like there's always so much on the farm that needs to get done that's not getting done because I just don't have enough hours in the day that if I like did not, you know, like set time for myself to like work, I really would just, you know, farm full time. Okay, so you do that until about what time? Okay, um, I usually work every night uh, until mm, I really try to wrap up at five thirty or six, and I'm pretty like, you know, I, I'm pretty diligent about that because there's just always so much that needs to be done in the evening, and it's funny because like I think that's somewhat unusual in publishing. Um, and like you know, I have editors who, in New York who call me at like seven or like people who want to set you know appointments at, you know, eight o'clock. And, uh, you know, I always just kind of explain that, like, I'm sorry, but I have to go work on my farm. I have so much work to do. Um, so I, I try, I try and really be out the door again at, at 530 or six. Wow. Okay. And so you're actually doing two jobs then? Yes. Um, and so this is really, uh, this is interesting, because I, I was researching um, some stats on young farmers for something I was you know, looking into, I was thinking about pitching an essay about like the struggle of being like a young, you know, farmer. Um, and young is a relative term here. I'm 35. So I'm not that young. But, no, you're uh, young. But, you're young. <laughs> so I mean, as farmers go, right, like this aging population. So like, technically, I am young. Um, but uh, so the like majority of young farmers are spending at like 40 hours a week. I, I, I might have to get these stats for you, uh, but they're like spending 40 hours a week on their farm and 40 hours a week in their jobs uh, because they can't farm full time because they cannot make enough income off of it. Um, and like, I found that stat and I was like, Oh my God, that's me. I'm so exhausted all the time. Um, and like, yeah, there's like three more hours of work that happened from five 30 to eight 30. And it's funny because like my husband and I, we had to like sit down and set a pact and be like, we will stop working at eight 30 because we were coming in at nine and then like trying to figure out like, 
some sort of food for dinner. And like, we like, we're like, we can't, this is unsustainable. We're like grouchy and tired and hungry. And like, so at 8.30 on the dot, both of us have to be inside, whatever we're doing, like if it's not done, it'll get done tomorrow. Um, and I mean, there's just, it, you know, there's just always more to be done that never gets done. So are you at the point now where you're a subsistence farmer? Is it like, if you don't do the work, you're not eating or are you sort of in a balancing it with just, yeah, tell me, tell me how that works. Right. Okay. And that's a great question. So it's, and this is know, not to put I, you on the spot, by the way, I know you just, you, when did you move to the farm? It was okay, recently, right? Yeah. No. So we have been here. Um, we bought the place almost exactly a year ago and we spent two to three months kind of getting it livable because it was a seventies nightmare show in this house. Um, and <laughs> did so you just we, have like, shag carpet everywhere? Yes. Um, and, um, that old wood paneling, uh, the whole house was like old wood paneling, uh, and yes, shag carpet, like it was just toilet covers. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Whole right. thing. Um, this house, <laughs> uh, so funny story. Apparently this house has been on the market for 10 years. Like the entire farm has been like on and off the market for 10 years. And we were the suckers that finally bought it. Oh, uh, like two God. city kids who like did not know better. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, so um, we spent, yeah, two to three months, like not even like living in it, just trying to fix it up while we still had our rental kind of thing. And then we've probably been on the farm for, I don't know, eight or nine months. So we've been here for a little while, but, um, it's, it's been so much more work and money, I think, than either of us realized to like get the place back up and running. Um, so I wouldn't even say we are subsistence farming at this point because like I still go to the grocery store, you know, I'm not there yet. Um, and, um, but I would say we are, um, what are we, we are getting to the point where we're starting to figure out what we can do that is a profitable enterprise where we are. And like, that's some trial and error, right. To figure out like what your market will support um, and what will, you know, do reasonably well with the hours that you have available, because neither of us are ready to move full-time into farming. Um, and I don't think we'll be ready to move full-time into a farming for many years, just with the economics of it. Um, so both of us will have to maintain our, you know, day jobs for quite a long time. Uh, and so we're trying to figure out, you know, what are the things that we can do where we can still have our day jobs um, and still, you know, make, well, the dirty secret with small farms is that none of them make money. Um, but, you know, turn some sort of profit to like make it feel like the effort is somewhat worth it. Right, right. So what are you thinking in terms of your market? Like, what are you going to grow yeah. and raise? Right. So right now we're doing pastured eggs, uh, which are doing really well for us and is very fun. Um, I absolutely adore my laying hens. The, this has brought me so much more joy than anything I ever could have imagined. Um, so uh, and so we're selling those um, and either organic free range. Um, and there, there is a market here for them, but it's small. Um, so we're hoping to continue expanding that operation. Um, and then uh, we have bees, um, and we're uh, hoping next year to have enough honey to sell uh, commercially, locally. Um, and then um, next year, we are experimenting with a couple of things. Um, I'm thinking about um, Dexter cattle, which is a small cattle breed. Um, and they're like, I don't know, somebody called them like the corgis of cattle. They don't really look like corgis, but they're like small and squat. Um, and the interesting thing about Dexters is that they are quite hardy and resilient. Um, and so I'm trying to plan out our farm with um, 
climate change in mind and thinking about, okay, you know, if, if our climate changes and like, what if our pastures become somewhat scrubbier, you know, what if, uh, what kinds of things am I going to want to have on my farm, you know, um, as, as it gets harder to farm. And so, um, these Dexter cattle are like a little bit, um, more able to kind of survive in kind of scrubby environments and they're smaller, they're easier to deal with. So I'm kind of thinking about them at the moment, um, for, you know, grass fed beef sharers. Um, but I have some ethical quandaries with beef, right. As I think a lot of us do. Um, and I'm wondering if that marketplace is changing. So, you know, it's it's a really interesting time to be in this, and I spent a lot of time thinking about like, well, what's the most most ethical way to use my land in a productive way to help feed society because that's important to me, and I want to be you know helping, uh, but in a you know a, a way that that makes sense for the future. So. Right. Yeah. By the way, that sounds like a great piece if you haven't written it yet. How farmers are preparing for climate change, like the kinds of breeds you should be looking at. Have you done that yet? Yeah. Well, no, no, but the problem is we're not. Uh, so, you know, I uh, had this interesting moment last week. I, I'm in a bunch of like farming Facebook groups, um, which are really interesting environments for a number of reasons. But like people cannot post about climate change, climate change in those groups without it becoming this like insane political debate that like then gets like shut off by the moderators because it's like too toxic. And so we have an entire like you know, like subset of farmers who are unable to talk about climate change because it's so bothersome to other farmers. Um, and that is a really big problem. Uh, we need to figure out, you know, some way to get our farmers talking about climate change that like, but it's, it's just not happening. Um, so that's a whole other thing. I know. And, and it really has to be framed. I've found just like talking about drought or preparing for wildfire, like any word, right. but climate change seems to somehow be more acceptable, but yeah. it's Yes, um, exactly. Exactly. Posing it as a weird weather event. Uh, but, but, you know, at this point I am not, I, I do not have the patience uh, to coddle feelings on that, you know, like this is coming and like, I need to to get my farm to be resilient. Um, and if it means that I can't talk to you about it, I will find the person I need to talk to about it, you know? Um, so yeah. Uh, but, but it's, it's definitely one of those things. But this is something I think way too much about and I spend way too much time ruminating on our food supply and climate change and the fact that, you know, a lot of farmers will not talk about it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I do too. And <laughs> a lot of people think I wrote a book about breastfeeding, but for me, it was very much like, well, in a world of climate change, like, how are we going to feed our children? Like, that was a big reason why I wrote the right. book too, you know, like food security. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, not as, it's not really a place where that people want to talk about all the time. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. So, okay. Well, anyway, let's let's get back yeah, to your... Sorry. No, 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 no. I, I love it. Um, so, actually, I want to ask you, why did you choose Tennessee then, considering that, like, oh. you're looking at the future? Did you read that book? Do you know that book, Strategic Relocation, by any chance? I do not, but I will add it to my list. Yeah. So, it's all about how to choose... It's for preppers, but also for people who want to live off the land. And it's all about where is are the areas in the world and country of least risk. And Interesting. yeah, so how, yeah, how did you choose Tennessee? And well, where were okay. you before? Yeah, uh, so my uh, so my husband works for the National Park Service. And so we bounce around the country. Um, and we have lived kind of all over the place. Um, so we met in Virginia, and then we moved to Hawaii, where he worked at the USS Arizona Memorial um, at Pearl Harbor. Um, and Hawaii He's a ranger? Like, yes. Uh -huh. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, and 
Hawaii was such an interesting place to be uh, for from like a resiliency standpoint because it like is not food secure at all. Um, and that really bothered me when we lived there that like, you know, I think like when, uh, there was always a rumor that there was like eight days worth of food and that was it kind of thing. Um, I don't know if that's true. I might've just like totally like perpetuated that rumor, but you know, you're in the island, on an island in the middle of the Pacific where everything is brought in by boat. Um, and like, I thought about that all of the time. So uh, from Hawaii, we moved to Florida. Um, and and then from Florida, we moved to Tennessee. Um, and I love it here. Uh, I mean, that's really the reason that we own a farm here is that we got here. And I, I thought, you know, I really love this place and would like to be connected to it. Um, and uh, we are both city kids. I grew up in Washington, D.C. And he grew up kind of in the suburb, suburbs of Washington, D.C. Um, and so we are learning to farm as city kids, which is maybe something I wouldn't recommend. Um, but, uh, but it's, it's, you know, uh, it's been quite an experience and, and I would not do it any differently. So. Yeah. So tell me more about your upbringing then. Like what did your parents do and what do they think of what you're both embarking on now? Right. Uh, so I think, you know, my parents are maybe not that surprised by what I'm embarking on. So like, you know, they're both lawyers. My dad worked for the department of justice and my mom worked in nonprofit work. So, you know, like city jobs, you know, like DC jobs, you know, um, but even as a kid, I always wanted a farm. Um, you know, sometimes we go on vacations to like bed and breakfast in, you know, like rural Virginia. And I just ate that up. I just like wanted to pet the farm animals and, you know, cuddle the geese and things like that. Um, and as a kid, I tell this story about like, my dad would send me out to like rake leaves in the fall and like I would play farm and pretend pretend that I was doing farm chores. Um, and, you know, instead of just raking leaves, I was, I don't know, whatever I was doing, feeding animals as I was raking leaves or whatever. So um, I've always had this interest in agriculture and I, you know, I adore animals. I love being outside. Um, I love being productive outside um, and, you know, being busy. Um, I've always been the kind of person who loves being busy. Um, so I don't think like they're that, terribly surprised. I think like, you know, they're uh, definitely surprised at how much we've taken on. So like, I think we originally were looking for, you know, 10 acres in a house where I could have my, my horse and maybe a chicken or two to keep, you know, the two of us occupied. Um, and then we ended up buying 45 acres of like fully functional cattle ranch, you know, and so um, like the, there were cattle on here when we moved. Um, and, you know, so I think that uh, they didn't expect us to bite off as much as we did. And I don't think I did. Um, but uh, now it's been really fun. And I find it really fascinating to kind of, you know, be up to my eyeballs in, you know, thinking about, you know, issues in agriculture, um, especially at this moment in time. And with the job that I have where like, I'm a professional researcher. So I spend all day like thinking about, you know, tough issues. Um, and, you know, it's given me a whole new outlet of things to like think and write about. Yeah. Well, if anyone can do it, you can with your background. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about that, <laughs> but I, I like your confidence. So, but so how did it happen? How did you end up biting off more than you could chew? Like, were, did you have years of soul searching? Can you kind of walk me up until maybe right before the point when you decided like, we're going to do this? Yeah. Um, I think like the best answer for that is like that I had a tantrum. <laughs> um, so like, okay. <laughs> We were looking for like the right piece of property. And um, I, you know, we looked at, I don't know, probably like 30. Um, we, we spent a long time looking and like there, our real estate agent had like very specific, you know, parameters of like 10 acres, 
this is the price point, like, you know, and we got really close on one, there was a beautiful log cabin on 10 acres, it would have been perfect for, you know, just like, you know, my horses, maybe a couple chickens, that's it, like, you know, that kind of like the, the mini homestead dream versus the like actual working farm dream. Um, and then that, that, that one fell apart, it was too expensive, we, uh, you know, um, and, and so this, this place came up, um, and it was originally for sale by owner, and I kept driving by it, and I was like, oh, I don't want to deal with a for sale by owner. How serious are they actually kind of thing, you know? And then, you know, they actually relisted it with a, you know, a listing agent and, you know, the, the pictures went up online. And I remember kind of looking at it and being like, well, it's a lot, you know, there's a lot going on here. The house needs a ton of work, it's a lot of land, you know, but, but let's look at it anyway. And so, you know, we looked at it anyway and, um, I have to say that like this is really and truly my dream um, and my husband deserves a lot of credit for going along with it um, and he was not sure at all that he wanted to go along with it. Uh, we almost backed out of buying this probably five or six times like even like the day before we signed the paperwork with like all the money invested in you know all of the like you know walkthroughs and all of that that you have to do beforehand you know I think we had to talk about like is this really the right thing for us um, and uh, so I basically had a tantrum and was like, I really, really want this. <laughs> it's like not the most mature way to handle these things, but sometimes you just, I don't know, you know, you just really, really want something. I think I like felt it very deeply that like, this was like the next right set for us. And what's so interesting is that like, it has been really hard and you know, I mean, ballpark estimate, we've put $50,000 of cash into this farm to get things up and running, you know, like our, our, like the barn, every single truss that holding up the roof was broken. So we had to like get that, you know, fixed. We had to put up all new fencing. We had to, you know, it's just, it's been way beyond what we ever anticipated cash wise. And we're not even close to being done. Um, but, you know, I, um, I definitely have a sense of place um, that I've never had before in any other place that I've ever lived that like, this is where I belong. And like, this is like, when I travel for work, I can't wait to get home. And when I get home, I like just like stand outside and like look out at my fields. And I'm like, yes, I'm glad that I'm here. You know, this, this is, this is where I'm meant to be. So I don't know. Um, it started with a tantrum, but honestly, like it's been really, really wonderful. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you really, really wanted this and you really felt strongly yeah. about this path, but even before that, was there a time that you didn't know that this was your path? Like, why was it not 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 okay but like why were you not content with just being an investigative journalist like was there a point right. even before that and if for your husband too great yeah good question um and i'm only hmm. asking this because i have been in this soul searching place for a long time now so i wish for me it was as simple as a tantrum but like it's been years of like figuring out well, how do I get that kind of life? And like, what would that even look like? So I'm so amazed that you had this like strong gut feeling. And I just, if there was more of a searching period and I, I'd love to hear about it, I know our listeners would too. So I guess I want to make sure I understand your question. Like the, like, tell me like the, you know, like the searching period to like know that I needed more than to just be a journalist. Is yeah. That yeah. I mean, where did it come from yeah. that you were like, you said that you knew when you were little, you loved animals and you used to play farmer, but like, was that a thread that you had a memory that you had all the time? You were, and I know you were, you were like a classical violinist too, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, here's, 
a thing that I am realizing now and I'm like working on this with my therapist is that I like take everything like too far. Right. Um, and so like, <laughs> I, I do too. Like, so I get it. <laughs> yeah. Like I can't just be like, you know, a member of the orchestra. Like I need to be the first chair violinist. Right. Like I can't just like ride my bike. I need to like be racing my bike at like the like highest level. Right. Like, so yeah, you're I an Ironman like, athlete. You're, yeah. I don't know if the listeners know that. So let's put that out there too. <laughs> Right, right. So, um, I mean, this is actually not a character strength. Um, and so for anybody listening who's like thinking this is a virtue, it's not. Um, but the thing is that like, I think that this is like, this is one more manifestation of that. Like I wanted to get to, like, I've always loved to garden. Um, in Florida, we lived in, we lived in South Florida in like, you know, I don't know, this kind of like ritzy community. And I like turned our entire back patio, the rental, um, we like we're renting this house, I turned the entire back patio into like raised garden beds, which I'm sure ruin their patio forever. Sorry, landlords. Um, but like, I've just like <laughs> love growing food. Um, and so like, I, and it was just like, it, it's sun baked South Florida patio. So all I could grow were sweet potatoes and okra. That's the only thing that like would tolerate that level of heat. Um, but like I would grow it anyway, because that's like, you know, I just, I love growing food. And so like, because I am the kind of person who does everything in excess, I was like, well, I guess I'm a farmer now, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think that's part of it. And then the other part of it is like, journalism is hard and I have a very complicated relationship with it, especially as a freelancer where you're constantly hustling. You constantly feel like you are, you know, I don't know. I don't know if this is, happens to you, but like, I always feel like I am kind of like, that was my last good project and, and nothing I write after this is ever going to be good. Or like, I'm not going to do anything meaningful after this. Like I, um, I really struggle with that as a journalist um, and feeling like, you know, everybody's doing better work than me. I'm just kind of like, you know, ugh, I don't know. I don't even know what that's called, but I struggle with that. And so like, I definitely need outside interests to like give me, something to do uh, that is not at all connected to my self-worth as a journalist, where I tend to be very, very hard on myself. So um, farming and farming has been great for that. Uh, the great thing about farming is that it's always imperfect. Um, and so like, you know, right now my squash are being totally devastated by squash bugs and we don't use any pesticides because we have bees. Um, and so I'm just like kind of having to watch the devastation happen. Um, and like, you know, it's just one of those things where you just have to be like, well, that sucks. Um, but that's just like the way it is. Um, and like, it's such a like a useful break from like the perfection world of journalism where like everything has to be perfect because you can't get it wrong, right? Like it's really like bad if you get it wrong, right? So like, I mean, if something goes wrong, you're kind of like, oh, like like this year I planted my sweet corn too close to my popcorn. Um, and I like thought I separated them enough, but not quite. And so I ruined my sweet corn. And it's just one of those things where like, Huh, okay, well, that sucks, but you move on, you know, um, and with journalism, it's not like that. It's also permanent um, that, you know, it just kind of, it's a nice balance. Yeah. Well, the farming, that part of farming is that trial and error, whereas in journalism, yes. and I, by the way, everything you say so resonates with me, both because I actually was a classical musician and I am someone who takes everything too far. So ah. that I, so I was an opera singer. And then I was oh like, gosh. I'll start writing because I'm sick of music and I need a break. And then I was like, I'll write a book. And then that's so I, I totally <laughs> see how it's nice to meet someone else who is like that. Um, and and it also, you know, what you said about the work as a journalist and, and never knowing what comes next. I mean, that piece you wrote in The New York Times about arrival fallacy, about yeah. just not maybe you could just talk about arrival fallacy really 
quickly uh, sure. for our listeners. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So basically right after Innocent Man came out, um, I fell into kind of like the worst depression of my life. Um, and I just like, really, there were like days where like, I just, it was, I was just so, so supremely unhappy and it caught me really off guard because, um, you know, I had done something I was really proud of. And like, I was like, what is wrong with me? Um, and I started kind of doing research on like, I had this idea that like, you know, why do, you know, people like Anthony Bourdain and, and, you know, um, Robin Williams, like, why do they seem to struggle with suicide and depression? And what's going on here? I started doing some research, and I came across this term um, called arrival fallacy. Um, and the idea is that um, so many of us kind of have, have banked our careers on, you know, bringing us joy, um, and like being, you know, this, this thing that like, when we arrive at success, um, that will translate to happiness. And researchers know that like, that's actually not the case. Um, so you will feel a short burst of happiness, right? As I did when I saw Innocent Man on the screen for the first time after working on it for two years. And like that night watching it was really great, but that happiness doesn't, doesn't stay. Um, and so like, we tend to like have kind of set points for happiness uh, for our lives and we're kind of around the same you know, happiness level. But so when we get really wrapped up in this idea that like, this is what's gonna make my life great and then doesn't happen, that can be really debilitating. Um, and so, you know, um, for the New York Times, I worked on this, uh, this piece where I talked to some of the researchers who examined this idea of like why career success doesn't make us happy. Um, and, you know, it turns out that it's just like, that's not one of the big things that makes people happy. What makes people happy is relationships um, and uh, spending time doing things that you love. Um, and so, you know, for me with, with Innocent Man, it was over. So I love doing investigative work. Like it's my favorite thing to like dive into 300 pages of FOIA requests. Like, I think that's great, but it was done. And so I didn't have that thing to do that I love. And, you know, I, I will be the first person to admit that like when I'm working on a really big project, I tend to neglect my relationships a little bit because I'm busy, right? And so I like then like was like, oh, wait, maybe my like marriage and my friendships aren't as strong as I thought. And so it kind of, you know, kind of ended up in this bad spot because of it. And so as any good writer, I thought, well, maybe I can make a buck off of this. Um, and I, I wrote about it. Um, but, you know, that piece was really interesting because it really uh, resonated with a lot of folks. It got a lot of attention, but it also helped me realize like, farming and the like act of doing something that I love was really, really healing for me. Um, and like the fact that like, there is no great success really with farming. Cause it's a, it's a day in day out thing. You're always, you know, even if you like, I don't know, sell your cattle at auction for a million dollars, the next morning you still got to get up and do your chores, you know, those things that you love. Um, and, uh, so to me that, that was, that was helpful. Yeah. So it's the actual act of what you're doing every day that brings you the joy. It's, it's the act. Exactly. Um, it's the act, but then it's also like remembering that like joy isn't money, you know, joy is not success. It's, it's relationships. It's who we have in our lives to like share those moments with. And it's, it's exactly it's the act of doing the things that we love. Yeah. That so resonates with me. I know it does with our listeners. So where do you picture this going? Like, where do you see yourself 10 years from now? Do you have yeah. enough community around you now? Like, I know you said relationships, and I know you have relationships, obviously, with your animals and the land, but like, do you feel like this is enough? No, th th um, that's actually been a really big struggle. That's the thing I'm going to write about next. Is, um, 
I, I have really struggled with community here. And in general, we know that, you know, people in rural areas are struggling with loneliness. Like rural loneliness is very real. Um, and it's something that I have really felt, um, especially working from home, um, you know, being new to that relatively small community, um, you know, is hard to begin with. But then when you don't really leave your house, it's even harder. And um, I don't have children. Um, and so I kind of don't have the ability to, you know, interact at school with other parents or things like that. So um, I have been really working on that. And that's my next big project is like project make friends, <laughs> which sounds terrible. But it's like, it's something that I like really actually need to invest the time in. So um, so that piece is something that's ongoing for me. Um, uh, in terms of like 10 years from now, I, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I, I would like to think that I will be here still farming this land. Um, my husband's job is somewhat transient. Um, you know, he, we have moved around a lot in the past, so, you know, we may have to move for some reason. Um, but, but I, I'm very, very happy here. If it were up to me, I would be here forever. Um, and continuing to farm this land and, and do my work as a journalist. That's kind of my dream scenario is to be able to kind of continue doing this um, long term. I mean, journalism being where it's at, you know, I worry about that future every day. But uh, yeah, I, that's right here would be good in 10 years. We'll see. Yeah. So for our listeners who want to follow your kind of dream, what do you have any advice for them? I know that's such like a cliched question, but I know it hasn't been easy. I read, did you actually lose part of your finger recently? Oh, I did. Is that true? I hate to ask you about that, but like, I I know people (laughs) romanticize homesteading so much. So like, maybe we can close by you just telling us the real deal. It is, it is very, very hard. Um, the finger accident was not actually farm related, but I did break ribs this summer. That was farm related. Oh, um, man. so I had a very accident prone summer. How did you yeah, do that? Is, I, you know, this is so dumb, but I, um, I slipped in some mud and I tried to catch myself on our water trough, but my hand went into the water trough. And so my side hit the water trough, like full on metal water trough to the ribs. Um, and that was horrible. I like laid there in the muddy pasture, hoping my horses did not trample me. Um, So, and I like crawled back to the house, but, um, okay. So let's see. Uh, I'm sorry. The question again. Oh, the question was just give us the real deal, like advice for people who want to do what you do. Maybe even bust some of the myths. Like what do people really need to know if they want to take the real next step. Yes. Uh, it, it, okay. Two things. Uh, whatever amount of money you think it's going to take, um, double it. And um, the other thing is whatever amount of time you think you're going to devote to your land. If you want to grow your own food, if you want to grow food for a farmer's market, if you want to care for animals, whatever. Um, I, we always say double it and then, um, and then plan for some unforeseen emergency that will inevitably pop up because there's always an emergency on the farm. Um, it's, it's bonkers. Like we'll be like, Oh, we have a whole weekend to like knock out this project. And then Saturday morning we'll get up and like, I don't know, a tree has gone through a fence or, you know, just something has happened that needs to, Oh, they're like, we rolled the, t- the tire off of our tractor once. Uh, and oh. so like, yeah, that is like the biggest pain to deal with. We had to like, you know, figure out a way to winch the tractor up because on a hill, you know, and like, oh man. So there's always an emergency, um, you know, that you're, you're going to have to deal with. It, it eats your life. I can't remember the last time we like, you know, went out to dinner. <laughs> Just like, we're always too busy. Uh, but that being said, we sleep 
like so soundly at night, right? Like we're both like the good exhausted. We eat so well, right? Like there's so many fresh tomatoes and fresh eggs and things like that. That's like such a joy to have. Um, and for the most part, like it's brought so much joy and pleasure to my life that I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it up for all of those headaches, but have more money and more time than you, you know, you think because it will eat both of those. Well, I hope more of those are coming your way. And I, I've so loved talking to you and hearing a little bit about how you got here, your adventures. And so for everyone who wants to keep following your adventures, how can they stay in touch with you? How can they follow your work? Yeah, um, Twitter is probably the best place. Um, I'm AC Shelton. I'm occasionally on Instagram, but I tend to forget to up update it, which I know is bad because as a farmer, you should like have lots of pictures of your farm. I know, but writers forget. are not. I mean, I Instagram is not my favorite. My thing. I have a hard no. time. Most writers I meet are like, Ugh. Ugh, I love Twitter. Yes. Um, so I'm always there on Twitter. Um, and then um, my email address is on my website and people are always welcome to reach out. I love hearing people's farming stories or stories about what they want to do or, you know, if they, yeah, um, they're more than welcome to email me and I try to respond to everybody. Thanks, AC. This has been so much fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please don't forget to leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head on over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. As with every episode, the resources and links for the show are available at jennifergrayson.com where you can sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damien Hogan. That's it for me. And I'll be back soon with a new episode. Bye.